questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes Lisa Turkhurst to the podcast. Now, what you'll hear is a conversation that took place in February of 2019, but the subject matter is fresh, real, and applicable today. Lisa is president of Proverbs 31 Ministries and the New York Times bestselling author of many books. Today's discussion will be centered around her release, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, which documents her marital and health struggles that nearly devastated every area of her life. Michael had the privilege of being in the center of the restoration of Lisa's marriage, and today's discussion will be perfect if you've been asking, God, why would you allow this to happen? I really believe this conversation will help you if you're being pulled into the anxiety of disappointment by discovering how to better process unmet expectations and painful situations. So now without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Lisa, I'm so thankful for a chance to be able to talk with you. And I want to talk with you about your latest book, which is the culmination, not just of a lot of uh, biblical and theological study, which your books are known for, and not just being real about your life, but about being deeply, deeply open and vulnerable about your own suffering. And so the book is called, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, Finding Unexpected Strength When Disappointments Leave You Shattered. Would you just give an overview of how your life was shattered in the last several years? Because there's many different elements to that, just to give people an overview of the context of the book. Sure thing. And, you know, for the sake of time, I'll do them in a list. But just know that um, that uh, with each of these things, it was years and layers of deep, deep pain, trauma, shock, um, and the need for desperate healing and help. So um, I never want to sound flippant as I list them out. But basically, my husband and I um, had what I felt like was a very good, stable marriage for many, many years, over two decades. Then much to my complete shock, I found out that he had gotten pulled into a world of darkness that was very separate from our family. And part of the darkness included him having an affair. It was probably the most shocking news I've ever received in my entire life. I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know um, who to turn to for help. I, I really do think that I walked around in complete and utter shock for a long time. And then while we were still trying to process and um, navigate the really treacherous roads of infidelity, um, I got very sick. And I remember, Michael, one of, during one of our counseling sessions, I remember you telling me how important it is for us to process our emotions in a healthy way. And I tend to be much more of an internal processor, um, which is not a bad thing, except um, I was internalizing more hurt and pain than what I could possibly process. And I remember at some point you said the body will keep the score and you were absolutely right. So in the midst of a lot of uncertainty about my marriage, I wound up having to have very major surgery for my colon. My colon twisted and I was in danger of not making it. I was in the ICU for 15 days in critical care. And it was a, a very difficult, painful, physically painful, um, on top of all of the emotionally painful realities of my life. And then um, I had barely healed from that, still not reconciled with my husband. And I found out I had breast cancer. And so again, I always hesitate to list those things off, but for the sake of time, that's kind of in a nutshell, all that I was facing almost simultaneously. 
and any one of those things would be devastating. Um, and as I knew you and walked with you through all that, I just kept thinking, God, why, why are you pummeling her? It just felt like it was one blow after another. And what you discovered, um, even though people might compare lists and say mine is not as bad or mine's worse, is that this is really such a common human experience, which might sound so incredibly obvious that it's patronizing, but that we're all walking around at any given time with a profound level of uh, pain and deep disappointment and for some betrayal. Was that surprising to you uh, as you went through this process that you could experience so much suffering? Well, I think I was surprised by the fact that I want God and my relationship with God to be as neat as a math equation. And the way that I want life to work out is if you do one plus two, it will always equal three. So with my health challenges, you know, Lisa, if you eat healthy and you exercise, then you won't have these medical crisis happen in your life or with your marriage. You know, if you do the date night plus the, you know, weekend getaway marriage retreats, then you will not experience the tragedy of infidelity. So I want things in life to be as neat as a math equation. And I kind of want God to be as neat as a math equation. Like, okay, God, if I pray and I read my Bible, I do all the right things, you know, then that should shield me and protect me from the harder things of life. But, you know, God never intended to be reduced to a math equation and life will never be as predictable as that either. And so it wasn't so much that I was surprised that I was walking through hard things. I guess I was just surprised by the fact that you can do all the right things and then life can fall completely apart. Even so, I, I don't want to control God until I do. Right. <laughs> so it's like, I have big trust and big faith in God until I cannot understand why simultaneously all of this is happening. So to say that I was confused is absolutely the correct statement. And, you know, I'm a woman of deep faith. I teach this stuff. I live this stuff. I am really, really deeply spiritually in tune. And yet, um, yeah, I was definitely completely caught off guard by the realities of my life. It seems to me that when one plus two doesn't equal three, that's actually when faith and belief kick in. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I'm learning that. You know, I I think before I walked through all of this, I felt like faith was a culmination of a lot of right decisions. And now I would say faith is what holds you together when everything else falls apart. Oh, that's good. I love that. This part of the conversation reminds me, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who I love because my book is uh, built on a quote from him, where he says that the man knocking on the brothel door is knocking after God. He also wrote in a little book called Orthodoxy, he said that in the spiritual life, chess players go mad, but poets never do. The chess player is the one that wants the logic and the rationality of one plus two equals three, but poetry is not about the math and the neatness uh, of arithmetic, but it's more about the, the open-endedness and the mystery and the expression and the experience in the midst of pain. And um, it's interesting because you say that you are the one who likes the math equation, but you've always struck me as more of a poet who does put words to the messiness and the darkness of faith, but God still took you through this process. Yeah, I would say I'm a romantic that's led by logic, but intrigued by mystery. <laughs> so, you know, it's a complicated existence. I know sometimes you will um, talk about the Enneagram, and it has taken me forever to figure out what I am on the Enneagram, okay, which should so, probably so wait, give wait. you a clue. <laughs> Don't say yet. Drum roll, please, to the world. Lisa Turkhurst, your Enneagram number is? <laughs> well, I've already kind of given you a clue. I'm the type that the most commonly 
mistyped, uh, like they would mistype themselves or throw the test or whatever. The first time I took the test, Michael, I scored even across all the numbers. And so I don't know if that means I'm a complete psychotic situation <laughs> or I, that I look like Jesus. I don't know. There's debate on both those sides, I'm sure. But um, I'm a nine wing eight, which uh-huh. means um, the combination of that is strange because um, I'm a peacemaker. I want peace desperately, but my eight will sometimes do things that takes my nine forever to clean up. So, um, but you know, the combination of a nine wing eight, I think I, I read in, in one information, um, thing that I read, it was, um, it's the referee. And so, and I have been called on to be the referee in pretty much every situation I've ever been placed in. So it makes sense. It's just an odd combination. Yeah, there's a sense of uh, authority that you can wield, but within a given structure that's handed over to you. Otherwise, you won't kind of stand up into that place without it being given to you. Yes. So, and it does make me, um, you know, the eight is is the challenger, you know, more direct. Um, the nine is um, pretty indirect and can... Um, kind of meld into the background of any kind of relationship that they're in. And and what's interesting is I remember when Art and I were going through the healing process, something else very helpful that you said is, Lisa, you cannot lose yourself. Like you have a voice here too. And what's odd is I spend my whole life using my voice. I use my voice when I speak and write and teach and lead and all of that stuff. But in my relationship, the nine sometimes does make me just for the sake of keeping peace, just want to kind of melt into the background. And, um, and you know, counseling, especially for someone like me, who has a lot of logic, but who also can be quite a poet, um, counseling is crucial. It's absolutely crucial for someone wired like me. Good plug for counseling. You know, um, I'm going to have to talk to my buddy Ian and have you go on typology and talk about your Enneagram number because it's, it's fascinating. But I want to come back to your book because that's what I, I really want the listeners of Restoring the Soul to be exposed to. You know, I didn't know a lot of your writing in depth before we met, but I have become a huge fan of your writing, not just because you're really a beautiful writer, but because I think your, your writing has a lot of depth to it. Um, theologically. And you start out this book, it's not supposed to be this way, and uh, you talk about two gardens, life between two gardens. And can you talk a little bit about that that reality of uh, the fall at the beginning and the garden that we're hoping for at the end? Yeah, so the Bible starts out in this beautiful perfection that a lot of us We kind of expect that from God. I mean, if you've ever heard someone say, you know, I can't believe a loving God would let this happen or that happen. And and I want to nod in agreement with you and say, you're right. It's not supposed to be this way. Let me take you to the Bible and show you exactly where things went wrong. And it wasn't with God. So we start out the Bible in perfection. And because the human heart was created in the context of perfection, Um, but when the humans, Adam and Eve sinned, they could no longer stay in that perfection. And so they were ushered out of the garden and there's many deep theological points I could, I could, you know, say to, to show you this wasn't an act of cruelty by God. It was actually an act of great mercy by God. So the minute that that sin entered in perfection ended and, um, and that's complicated because perfection is etched into the very DNA of the human soul. We know it exists, but part of our frustration in life is that apart from our relationship with God, we will not find it. Now, we think we can find it. I mean, we can take one look at at the pictures we post on Instagram and, you know, we edit and filter and crop and retake and redo and everything, trying to capture these glimpses of perfection. But even what we think is perfect is really not. It falls apart the minute that we post it because there are going to be people who see imperfections and even what we try to do as perfect. So this causes a lot of anxiety. So we have anxiety in our heart because the human heart was created in 
perfection, but we don't live in that perfection now. Then if you read the very end of the Bible in the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, in my Bible, Revelation 22 is Eden restored. So that's where we return to perfection again, where there will be no more death, no more crying, no more tears, you know, all of that. So perfection returns. But right now, we're not in the first Garden of Eden. We're not in the restored Garden of Eden. We are doing life between two gardens. And if you can understand that spiritual orientation, it helps make sense of some of the deep difficulties that we walk through. And we can stop blaming God. We recognize that it's a reality because of sin. It's, it's not God didn't design it this way. And that's why it was really important to me that the book be called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, because I wanted this title, this book title, to enter into conversations people were having and point them to the, the deep love of God when doing life between two gardens. Yeah, and that the, the gospel, the good news, in addition to all of what it means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, is that God puts on skin and flesh, and he comes into this space between the two gardens, and he makes his presence real, and he makes himself known so that we can actually uh, access him and even see him in the hands and feet and the lives of the people around us like you have. That's right, and and some of my favorite passages um, in the Bible, talking about Jesus entering into this life between two gardens with us. One of them is Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 18. And it talks about that he shared in our humanity so that he could not only make an atonement of our sins, but so he could also become a merciful and faithful high priest. So Jesus knowing what it feels like to be human, to be betrayed, to be hurt, to be rejected, to you know, be deeply wounded by other humans, though he was completely sinless, his divinity was complete, but his humanity was very raw and gritty and real. And then another section of the Bible I love to point people to is there's a third garden mentioned in scripture that's very profound. It's the garden of Gethsemane. It's the garden, it's the middle place between the two gardens of Edens. And, um, And in Mark chapter 14, we get to hear Jesus so, so raw and so deeply troubled and expressing his humanity in a way that very many of us express our humanity. You know, he he admits, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, I'm hurting so bad, I feel like this might kill me. I relate to those words of Jesus. But then in Mark 14, this is starting in verse 32, and I believe it goes down. Verse 36, he cries out to God and says, God, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And I'm telling you, Michael, there are no other words of Jesus I relate to on a human level more than these. That right there is where our faith sometimes really comes into crisis, is when we know God could fix something, and we, we know it's possible for God. And yet he doesn't. But then Jesus, at the end of that sentence, utters nine earth-shaking, hell-shattering, demon-quaking words, yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, Jesus was trading his will for God's will because he was so confident that at the end of the day, God will work good from this. And of course, we know at the end of Jesus' story, um, though his human body did suffer and go to the cross and die a physical death, his spiritual resurrection provided such glorious hope for redemption for all of us. And so looking at that story, it's taught me from a biblical standpoint, doing life between two gardens is going to be a constant process of me learning how to trade my will for thy will, because I'm so confident God will. Um, and so, you know, from a spiritual aspect, that's led to, to a lot of healing for me. And as you referred earlier to the one plus two doesn't equal three, that's the part about this that is so hard is I, I want to hear, even as I'm hearing you talk, I want to hear a sermon on, well, tell me, tell me how to do exchanging my will for thy will. And once I figure that out, then everything's going to be Okay. But that's the part where it's mystery and it's faith and it's trust. 
It is. And you would probably be disappointed in my sermon on that because my practical example of how to do this is so basic. But here's a little snapshot of what it looked like for me. It was uh, many nights waking up and uh, being utterly alone. You know, Art and I were separated for two and a half years through our journey, which means that, you know, through many of the medical crisis I was walking through, um, I would come home at night and there would be no one here at the house with me. And uh, that was complicated and hard. And I would go to bed and uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would reach over out of instinct because, you know, for over two decades, Art was there right beside me in the middle of the night, but out of instinct, I would reach over and my hand would fall flat onto cold sheets and he wouldn't be there. And so trading my will for thy will, because I'm confident God will looks so very basic. It was me at that 2.30 a.m. hour with utter darkness outside and the feeling of absolute fear in my heart and being washed afresh of the hard circumstance I was in with my marriage and just simply praying this, Jesus, I love you and you love me. And that's all I know. Jesus, I love you and you love me. And that's all I know. And you know what? That's enough. Mm. And it wasn't that my feelings agreed with that. It was that I had to let my soul utter that until my feelings could settle down and I could fall asleep. So it wasn't this big epic thing like, God, I'm going to hang. Here's my will. I'm trading it for thy will. It, It was not that. It was very human. It was very raw. It was very basic. But sometimes I would utter that in the middle of the night a hundred times until finally the gift of sleep would come back to me. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I know that you allude to moments like that in the book, but that is so raw and real. And the moment that you said, uh, Jesus, you love me and I love you, I just exhaled. (laughs) I thought, that's what my heart wants. That's what I've actually experienced. And it really isn't more complicated than that, is it? Right. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you easy answers and it doesn't give you the next steps to take. You know, those are all things that our human mind is so desperate. Give me the plan. You know, I I probably said that to you a hundred times in counseling. Michael, if you'll just give me the plan, like I'll follow the plan. But the minute that we start following the plan, we get more concerned with following human answers than following after God himself. And something that God taught me through this process is, God does not want to be explained away. He just wants to be invited in. And so as I invited him into those moments of pain, it helped me finally, finally understand the purpose of healing wasn't just to get over this, but it was to invite God in to help me get through this. And there's a big difference between those two. Yeah, that's that's so important. I want to say that again and come back to it. You said that God doesn't want to be explained away, but that he wants to be invited in. And what what my experience has been, as I have people uh, in my office and I'm ministering to them, and as I've walked through my own trauma and abuse, that if I can get to the place where I can just say, Jesus, come into this. I don't know what that's going to look like, what it'll feel like. It may not change anything, but that it somehow gets us through the moment. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, getting stuck in moments was the hardest part of the journey. And everything in my emotional response to that moment begged me to not invite God in because the emotions felt so intense. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to invite God in. You know, I want to numb this pain. I want you to tell me something that will help me get over this pain. I I found myself just in so much resistance, but you know, pain is a funny thing. I've learned that pain is not the enemy. Pain is the exact indicator that is this flashing symbol in my life of something needs to be addressed. And, you know, just like when I'm driving down the highway and the indicator light 
dash, you know, comes up on the dashboard of my car. And my instant response, I mean, and you can just say, like, Lisa, that's called denial and counseling. And I will agree with you. I have an issue with denial. But my instant response, I see this indicator light and I think, well, that's annoying. Now I have to go to the mechanic and have the light turned off. It never occurs to me that something might actually be wrong with the engine. It just doesn't. I just think that's annoying. I want that light to go away. And I want to just keep on driving. After all, I'm driving fine. So surely nothing's really wrong. Um, But I do that with pain in my life too. I'm really good at all of a sudden pain happens in my life. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't need to invite God into this. I don't need to invite anyone in this. I just need to figure out either how to numb the pain or just how to get the pain to go away. And then I'm going to move on with life. But what I've learned going through this process is that pain can be a gift. It's an indicator. It's something that warns us that something in our heart or in our soul needs to be tended to. It's an opportunity to not just invite God in, but to invite godly community in. And for me, it was the biggest indicator of my life I needed to invite godly counseling in because I not only needed to heal spiritually, I needed to heal emotionally as well. And so for me, a big part of inviting God in was inviting good Christian counselors in so that I could navigate what I needed to heal. Um, and, and really, in order to heal the pain, we have to allow ourselves to feel the pain. And it's only in feeling the pain that we'll be motivated to deal with the pain. In the book, you go into detail telling the story about your time in the ICU for 15 days and how it was actually the pain of that, that people kept telling you there was nothing wrong or it was indigestion and you knew better. And you kept going back and going back and finally a wise doctor got to the bottom of the problem, but that pain saved your life. That's right. So I was laying in the hospital in really excruciating pain. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning. And um, the doctors, even just to help me, wound up putting me on a morphine pump. But the pain was so intense, even the morphine pump didn't fully take the pain away. And um, because I was in so much pain, they kept running tests. And then finally, they ran a different kind of test on Friday morning. And a surgeon came in my room and um, he told me that they were going to need to rush me into surgery, that I was actually in a life-threatening situation because my colon had twisted. Right before he walked out of my room and was heading down to the surgical unit, he said, Lisa, I know that you've asked God to take that pain away and how frustrating it's been that, um, that God didn't answer that prayer. But I just have to tell you that if God would have answered the prayer and taken your pain away, then we would have sent you home, your colon would have ruptured, and you would have been dead before this weekend. And um, he said, it was actually the pain that saved your life. And I remember thinking, wow, God loves me too much to answer my prayers at any other time than the right time and in any other way than the right way. And that's true of our physical pain and our emotional pain as well. This is a perfect segue to talk about dust. You had uh, given me the privilege of reading and you read for me uh, one of the earliest manuscripts of the first couple chapters. And my ministry, Restoring the Soul, is all about uh, healing brokenness. And you introduced this idea of, no, it's not broken, it's dust, it's shattered, it's pulverized. So talk about that as your experience, but also just this whole scriptural theme of what God does with dust. Well, one of the exercises I had to walk through um, with art. Uh, when he went to a treatment program as I was supposed to write an impact letter. And I remember writing the first part of this impact letter and it sounded quite hopeless because what I wrote was, you know, a lot of times in life we walk through things and um, we find that something hard happens and we feel quite broken. And the Christian response is to pick up those broken pieces, glue them back together. But never mind the fact that we're we're cracked vessels because God's light can shine through the cracks and we all sing Kumbaya and it's wonderful. But I said in the impact letter, that's not our story. I don't have broken pieces as I look around because the impact that this has had on me has left me completely shattered. When I look around, I see nothing but dust and you can't glue dust. And honestly, Michael, that's where my letter was going to end. 
but God in his great mercy, um, one night I was, I hadn't mailed the letter yet and I was just laying on my bed and um, probably having a pity party. And all of a sudden, the strangest memory came in my mind that of all the ingredients in the world that God could have chosen to make the first man, in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God chooses dust. And he picks up that dust and he breathes life into it. And from that, man is formed. And then from there, I remembered, you know, when Jesus walked the dusty roads of this earth, he spit into the ground and mixed. Uh, with his saliva, the dust of the ground, and made mud. And from that mud, he healed the blind man's eyes. And then in Isaiah and Jeremiah, we're reminded that God is the potter and we are the clay. And I know clay is made when you mix dust with living water. And then from that clay, when placed in the in God's hands, anything new can be formed. And so I took the impact letter back out and I wrote, but the good thing is with God, dust doesn't signify an end. Dust is what must be present for the brand new to begin. So that's what I wrote about. And it's not supposed to be this way because I do think sometimes people are beyond broken. They're shattered. They're shattered to the point of dust, to the point of hopelessness. But with God, he can take even that dust and make something glorious from it. I think one of the things uh, that I was most touched by and impressed by uh, when I read your book the first time was that you wrote this excruciating story of all, all three of those major traumas that you went through over the season. And you, you offered this as a gift in the form of your book when your own story wasn't completely rewritten. Uh, the question was open-ended about your marriage and until the uh, spoiler alert, uh, your your cancer wasn't exactly at a place where you had gotten the best news at that point, and so you offered all of this hope, but saying, "I don't know how it's going to turn out," and that was a very intentional yeah. decision. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, I turned my manuscript in um, in the early morning hours, the day that I was headed to the hospital for a double mastectomy. And so when I started writing the book, I didn't even know that in the unfolding of the book and the unfolding of my life that I was going to get cancer. I had no idea. When I wrote those first couple of chapters, cancer wasn't even on my radar. And so the book was really being written in real time. And the book was due and I'd found out I had cancer and I needed to have this pretty major surgery. So I literally turned the book in and got in the car, drove to the hospital. And, um, you know, when you have a surgery that major, not only was I not sure what was going to happen with my cancer, I mean, I wasn't even sure, like, what if I don't even pull through this surgery, you know? Um, So I think to me, though, the beauty of that is that the reader gets to experience in real time the honest humanity in the book. You know, sometimes when we're writing and we're looking back on difficult events, we can tidy them up a little bit more uh, than what they really were. And um, and then we can also uh, forget some of the intensity of what other people are walking through when they're reading your words. Most of the people reading my book, their pain is real time. So I felt like it was a gift for me to write this with my pain being real time as well. So it was a perfect match of the emotional level of where my reader was, but also always pointing them to the unexpected strength that I was finding even in the midst of the hardship. And I think that's the real blessing of the book is telling people you don't know how, you may not know how your story ends. But you don't have to know how your story ends in order to really grab onto this glorious gift of hope. And um, I I pray that I show people how to do that, Um, not attaching our hope to good endings, but attaching our hope to a good God. That's so good. One of the things I really appreciate about you and your writing is you have these catchy phrases that, that, uh, are not at all cliches. 
And, um, you know, as I, as I sit here in this podcast interview, it's just audio, but I can picture your face saying that. And it just feels like that's something that you have lived and walked through. And it's far, far, far from a cliche. Well, I know when people are reading a book, if they go too long without highlighting it, then they'll stop reading it. And if they stop highlighting it and stop reading it, then um, what a tragedy that is. And they'll never recommend it to a friend. And so my goal as I'm writing a book is every couple of pages, I want to write something so profound and connecting with the depth of my reader, um, the depth of their emotional, uh, whether it's their pain or their joy or whatever. I don't want them to just read this book. I want them to experience it. So every couple of pages, I challenge myself, is there something on this in on these pages that late at night when they're reading and their eyes are just about to go to sleep, that they are so excited about what they just read. They'll jump out of bed, walk all the way to their kitchen, dig in their junk drawer, find that highlighter pen that's somewhere in the midst of that junk drawer, go back to bed, highlight this and declare, this must not be forgotten. You know, I don't really think it's whole books that change people's lives. I think it's sentences within books that have a profound effect on people. And so I fight for my reader with every word that I write. I understand sentences matter. Yeah, that's so obvious. So I know that as you speak around the country and around the world, because I know you've done a lot of teaching in Israel and the Middle East and other places, you get people that come up to you, you know, and they're in profound pain and they're there and you can feel that pain is so palpable. And they're asking the same question that you asked in the book. One of the chapters, I think it's chapter three, is called, How Do I Get Through the Next 86,400 Seconds? So when, when somebody asks you that question, there's all these big ideas and all these truths, but how do you respond in the moment to how do I make it through today? Well, one of the things I say first off is I understand why you're asking that question because I know how painful just 60 seconds can be. And before I walk through this, I never knew just the thought of having to survive the next 60 seconds was more painful than what I even felt like I could bear. And, and so I, I think my eyes are able to penetrate right into the depth of their soul and say, I understand. And Michael, I truly think that sometimes that's enough. You know, they're not really looking for you to give them an answer of how do I do this? They're really asking the question, is it even possible? And I'm able to say, yes, it is possible. It will not be easy and it will take more time than what you even think you can bear. But never make the mistake. God did not curse you with this. He entrusted you with this. And you won't understand that statement right now, and that's okay. But I pray in some of the loneliest hours of your journey that you'll remember that and you'll come to understand that as healing starts to unfold in your life and just the fact that you're asking the question means you're on the journey of healing and I'm so proud of you. But just as that healing unfolds one day, you will see that the healing God gives you will actually feel like the best secret God ever whispered into your soul. And you will not walk around feeling like, you know, you were set aside in this season of life. You're going to very much know you were set apart. This was a sacred journey. Make no mistake. It may feel like a healing journey, but it is a sacred journey. And it's one that when you get through this and you will get through this, God will bless you. I think from our deepest desperation, God gives us some of our most profound revelations. And those are truths we wouldn't trade for anything. So those are powerful and strong words. But Lisa, let me, let me ask you just a personal question. And um, I'm not, this is not like violating confidentiality from a session that we had. But I, I imagine that even as you travel and as you offer these truths from your book, that there's got to be residue of pain 
that wells up sometimes or like a, like a wound that gets touched? And, and how do you deal with that today, the, what, what lingers after and as the healing continues? Well, that's such a good question because that's something Art and I've had to really process together as I've walked this journey because I am prone to triggers. I think anybody who's walked something that's deeply traumatic, you know, there are triggers that linger long after the situation resolves itself. And um, something I've come to understand is that there's two parts to forgiveness. The first part is we make the decision to forgive. And those are, we decide to forgive this person who hurt us for all the facts that happened. I'm there. I have made the decision to forgive Art for the facts. And I very much believe that I'm walking that road of forgiveness. But here's where forgiveness gets very complicated, is it's both a decision, which I have made, but it's also a process. And that process means that I also need to learn to forgive Art for the impact that this has had on me. And the impact is unpredictable. It comes in waves and it presents itself as triggers. And I never know when those are coming. But every time they do, something that I've had to learn to do and something that Art's had to learn to do, number one, I have to see this trigger as another layer of healing that is possible. That's the way I have to look at it. And it's not a setback. It's it's something that's an indicator of, hey, there's just a little bit more healing. And thank God that God lets our healing unfold in layers because maybe if it was all presented to us in one package, that it would be just so overwhelming, we couldn't do it. So I don't see triggers as a curse anymore. I see it as a gentle unfolding of another layer of healing that has to happen. And that's the way I look at it. And that means that I need to pick up the phone. Even if I'm on the road, I need to call Art and say, hey, here's what I'm hearing in my head. I'm feeling a little panicked right now. Can we talk about it? And now this is where Art has to make this decision and and what he has made the decision to do that helps me so much. He has to decide he's not going to personalize this. This isn't an accusation coming at him. It's an opportunity to show me all over again his humility, his beauty, of healing that he's walked through, his gentleness. And so he has to see it as an opportunity, not as an accusation. And we have great conversation around it. And honestly, some of the conversations that that are around it is, hey, I'm feeling haunted by this memory. I'm feeling haunted by this statement. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the anxiety and the pain afresh, and I need you to help me here. And then he'll say, okay, let's write the script now, Lisa, the way if this happened today, the way that it should have been written back then. And we have gone back and rewritten memories, rewritten scripts, rewritten things, um, hurtful things that happened and hurtful things that are said that if they happened today, it would be a completely different story. And that's helped me so much. Wow, that's beautiful. And it uh, it took you a lot of time and energy and investment of uh just sitting in counseling offices to be able to do that kind of healthy and productive communication because triggers can so often for a husband or wife just derail us from that kind of connection. Yeah, I remember um, at some point in the journey and it wasn't, it was only like halfway through my counseling journey with you and uh, restoring the soul. I remember Um, you added up the number of hours that we had already spent um, together. And of course, you guys are in Colorado, we're in North Carolina. So this meant like flying across the country and really taking the healing necessary. But at that point in the journey, we had spent over 75 hours face-to-face in counseling. So, you know, we definitely did the hard work. And we also had a counselor here in Charlotte that, um, that I spent probably just as much as not more time with. And so I took very seriously the fact that I knew I needed spiritual healing, I needed emotional healing, and I needed relational healing. Um, but I remember one of the best things you said to me early on in the journey is you said, Lisa, there are going to be parts of this journey where you're, you're not going to be able to work on the marriage. 
There are going to be parts of this journey where Art needs to work on his side of the street. You need to work on your side of the street. And when you get healthy on either side of the street, then your path can come back together and we can work on the marriage. And that was really good advice. It was hard to hear at the time, but it was really necessary and really good. So this is probably not a common question for your readers or the people to follow your ministry, but I imagine there's some people that hear this talk about counseling and emotional healing and relational healing and psychological and triggers and, and they go, but come on, Lisa, I know you love the Bible and Jesus, but isn't Jesus enough? Don't I just need God? Yeah, I would say, yeah, Jesus is enough. And part of him showing me that he was enough is he provided really wise Christian counselors to help me. <laughs> that's what I would say. That's a that's a simple answer. That's uh, I guess the person who who says that, uh, maybe what they mean, and I, I actually hear that, is I don't want to have to be vulnerable and dependent and connected to other people in my messiness and my brokenness. I just kind of want it to be me and Jesus. Yeah, and and I would say maybe in earlier seasons of my life, maybe I would have felt that same way, but I don't feel that way now because I have seen that when walking through emotional healing, um, that sometimes has to be done in community. And that doesn't mean a whole group of people. I mean, community can be me and my counselor sitting there and and allowing another human to have access to asking the right questions provided a beautiful spiritual incubator for me to get that deep hurt out of me and get it out of my mouth and to process it. And sometimes counseling isn't because you don't know the answers. Sometimes counseling is sitting with a trained professional who asks the right questions so that the answers that are tucked inside of you can emerge. But I'm a big believer, those beautiful answers that are tucked inside of you, they'll never emerge when they're hidden under layers of deep pain. So a great counselor will help excavate, like really like get all that pain out. And then beautiful answers will come tumbling out of your mouth because there's been an incubator of spiritual and emotional safety provided with your counselor. And, you know, you say this through every sentence of every chapter of your book, but going back to the life between two gardens, we do have the the garden where there's the fall of man and woman and everything goes haywire. And then we have uh, the garden in Revelation where all things are made new. Uh, But what what I see happen in your life and in arts life and in your marriage and in friends of mine and my own life and marriage is that Jesus is faithful to restore to a very substantial degree into a way that actually changes us from the inside out in this life. And that that healing is not total or complete like it will be one day, but that uh, this God who reveals himself in Jesus in his very first sermon said, I have come to bind up broken hearts and to set captives free. And uh, I just love how it's not supposed to be this way is really a picture of hope in the midst of unanswered prayer and darkness and valleys, but also how it's a picture and a path of restoration uh, as we invite Jesus into it. That's right. And, you know, so many times I think people will ask me, okay, well, Lisa, like, how did you, you know, get your relationship to the point where reconciliation was even possible? And, um, and I have to be honest and say, I don't know. I didn't do it. Um, and I don't understand why some stories end in reconciliation and some don't. But here's what I do know. Redemption is possible even in stories where reconciliation isn't. And that is that I know God is good. God is good at being God. Therefore, with all those things I don't understand, here's what I do know. No matter how our stories turn out, God has the ability to bring good from it. And I am so thankful that my story ended with Art and I had a beautiful 
vow renewal and um, and after two and a half years of separation and even more years than that of really, really hard pain and, and awful circumstances, I am so thankful that um, we have a second chance at being able to be a couple and be together. I really am incredibly thankful for that. But when I was writing my book, it's not supposed to be this way. Even when I wrote the very last page, I had no idea that my story would end this way. And so the book isn't about, okay, here's how you restore a broken marriage or a broken relationship. The book is much more, not not about reconciliation, but here's how you walk the beautiful path of redemption with God, no matter how your story turns out. And Lisa, that's a wonderful place to stop. I am so thankful for you. I'm thankful for... Um the way that you point me and millions of others literally to Jesus and to the fact that that's what God looks like. And I'm so thankful for you sharing the story uh, of, of how he met you in the midst of this. So thank you for this time uh, and for the gift of your writing. Well, thank you, Michael. And of course, there's a story about you in the book too. And so uh, people can discover that on their own. But I will say, I don't think I would be at the place that I'm at today if it weren't for your amazing ministry and your tender counseling. And God used you in a profound way in my life. But I would say your fingerprints are very much on this message as well. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.